Hi, Tim. Hey, Ash. Welcome back to Breaking the Fourth Wall, where we engage in stimulating conversations about ways that we can promote positive change in musical theater. Okay, Tim, what puzzler do you have for us this week? All right, this week, name five musicals that deal with the Asian experience. I love this question. I thought you would. Okay, so I'm guessing we're going to have to... Come back around at the end of this episode, and we will discuss it together. We will name five musicals that deal with the Asian experience. Moving on, what's in the news this week? Okay, there are four or five elements that were announced in the news this week about musical theater that I want to throw at you. Okay. The first one is there's going to be a documentary about Gwen Verdon. Ooh. It's called... Uh, Merely Marvelous, and it's going to premiere on Amazon Prime. Now, this is a documentary, so nobody is playing Gwen. It it comes right after the Fosse Verdon series that was um, released uh, this year, earlier this year, mm-hmm. that we watched and mm-hmm. loved. Mm-hmm. And so it's not a, a, a film that is going to be reenacting anything in her life. It's a documentary. So they're going to pull from clips, um, videos from her, um, her, her speaking, and then there are going to be interviews that they're re- filming and recording that are going to talk about her. A lot of Broadway performers are going to be speaking about her. And so it's going to be a documentary about her life. And as we know, Gwen Verdon was one of the predominantly famous female performers on stage, married to none other than... Bob Fosse. Yes. And if you haven't seen the Fosse Verdon film, the series, go see it. It is very well done. Most of it is truthful, and it really gives you a great idea of their relationship and how really destructive it was. I love that they're doing this film, though, so we get more of an in-depth just about Gwen. Uh, she was on Broadway in Damn Yankees, Redhead, New Girl in Town, Sweet Charity, and Chicago, and really worked with those amazing choreographers like Jack Cole and then, of course, um, Bob Fosse because she was her um, his muse, and then eventually um, they were married and stayed together and then separated before he passed away, and then they have a daughter together, Nicole. What a wonderful opportunity this is to, again, reinvigorate that conversation about the relationship between Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon. I think the FX limited series that was produced did such a wonderful job of painting a picture of the relationship of Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon. But more importantly, we got an opportunity to see um, how that relationship transpired through the films that Bob Fosse created and uh, Gwen Verdon's impact on those those works of Bob Fosse's. So I think this is a really great opportunity for everyone to experience in more detail who Gwen Verdon was as an artist. I don't want to forget that we just had 9-11 mm-hmm. this week. And um, do you want to share a little bit of your experience? I know this is very personal to you. I wasn't in the city when it happened, mm-hmm. but I know you were. So what was your experience during during 9-11? Yeah, I was actually in Brooklyn. Uh, and I was um, in my apartment. Uh, and when the first tower hit, uh, we all assembled on the top of our apartment. And we were basically looking out over this this incredible sight that uh, felt a little surreal in real time. And as we were standing out there, we were just kind of surrounded by all the tenants kind of looking at what was going on, seeing the smoke push into Brooklyn. And it was just, it's kind of one of those moments in my life that seared into my mind, and I think it will never leave. I, I can document right now, I could tell you literally, 
every single second of every moment that occurred, the moment that I heard that first thud of the first plane going into the tower. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it was, we had some really interesting conversations in class about 9-11 this past week. And a lot of my students who are freshmen had a lot of questions because they have, they were born or they were like only months old. I know that's right. crazy. And I, I'm dating were... myself, but like <laughs> uh, my students were literally like only like two months old when 9-11 happened. And I can't believe we're talking about it 18 years now. And it feels like it was still just yesterday. Even talking about it right now, I, I'm just, I get chills because it was one of the most terrific days I exp ever experienced in my life. And I hope to never have to experience something like that. Absolutely. And I think for our generation, it was our JFK assassination. Mm -hmm. It was yes. that moment, where were you moment. And um, it was really interesting to share stories with my students about that. And their eyes were just wide open. And they just couldn't believe that. The, for To them, and this is what I hear from them quite often, is that it, to them it doesn't feel real because most of them, gosh, we are getting so much older. I know. <laughs> they weren't a lot. They were the freshmen that we have incoming now. They're not even alive or as you're yeah. saying, barely babies. So to hear from somebody that was not only alive, but that watched it from their rooftop. And if in you've, real time. Yeah. If you've never uh, lived in New York, they're most all of the buildings they have rooftops mm -hmm. so you can go up to the top and and so many people watched it from there i just can't imagine that experience and i think talking about it is going to allow us to be aware mm -hmm. and to re to be in remembrance every year to also know that it could unfortunately happen again, happen again. You know, and i hope i honestly hope that it never happens again and no generation has to experience that but yeah you know we just have to remain vigilant and uh, remember every year you know this date 9-11 or that date 9-11 is just mm -hmm. such a powerful date that's seared in my mind in the mind of many many new yorkers and many people that even if you didn't live in new york if you live in california or the middle uh, middle of america yeah i was, was greatly in, i mean i was glued to the tv mm -hmm. you know watching and the fact that it was affecting the broadway communities i mean we talk about this all the time when we teach history that it immediately affected broadway and how the ticket sales dropped and how everybody kind of came out and did that amazing commercial um what the in new york da -da 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 -da. <laughs> yeah yeah the commercial you know, the commercial that Come we see show. a broadway play return to new york and yes. uh reinvigorate the the market because so many shows closed so many very famous shows closed as a result of 9-11 because yes. of lack of tourism that uh ensued after 9-11 so what's up what else is in the news there's going to be opening uh there there's just started previews on september 13th and it's going to open october 2nd the musical well it is a musical but it's a bit different it's freestyle love supreme mm -hmm. who is what is cre uh, created by lin-manuel miranda right and i know you have a lot of information on this what what are your thoughts on this can you well, explain it to us okay so it's not necessarily a musical i think we need to take it out of that context but it is in the musical theater season correct it, it is will it's it be part, up for a tony it's up yeah, that's a good question because it kind of fits it's in its own genre and i'll explain so to give you a little backstory about the evolution of Freestyle Love Supreme, uh, when Lin-Manuel Miranda was in college, he belonged to this improv hip-hop comedy troupe. And the whole premise was they would do sketch comedy uh, live uh, through improvisation, and there was an added element of hip-hop incorporated into their sketch comedy. And in interviews with Lin-Manuel Miranda, he always talks about, you know, uh, this was where I started to develop the courage and the idea to conceive of In the Heights, because he wanted to bring basically his knowledge of improv and his knowledge of hip-hop and combine that with his love of his community. Mm. Uh, and so that's kind of where the, that journey started for him while he was uh, studying um, 
theater at his college. Now music is so disposable. I want to feel close to you. Okay, I'm going to great escape. I'm going to give you my favorite mixtape. I will pick every song and I will string you along so you know how I feel about you. And yeah. ultimately, oh, I think man, what he I'm wanted gonna... to do was bring this experience back uh onto a larger audience. And so we're seeing the inception of Freestyle Love Supreme, which is going to be a hip-hop, improv, comedy troupe kind of extravaganza. Very and, cool. And there's going to be music in it, and it's going to be it's going to be musical in nature, but it's not necessarily a book musical. So anyone thinks that it's ne- Lin-Manuel's <laughs> next Hamilton, it is not that in any way, shape, or form. In fact, he's actually not necessarily starring in the cast. Well, while, while he may make an appearance, uh, it's being helmed by uh, some of his former uh, colleagues and co-stars, the likes of Christopher Jackson, who uh, obviously played Benny in, in The Heights and uh, George Washington in Hamilton. James Monroe Englehart, who we all know played the genie in Aladdin. Yes. Uh, David Diggs, who played Lafayette slash... Uh, uh, Jefferson in uh, Hamilton as well. And of course, Wayne Brady, of all people. How cool is that? Very cool. So, so a small cast, all male, but very, uh, very diverse. Correct. Uh, male cast. Very cool. And so uh, there's one more interesting point that's coming to light, and I think it opens a larger conversation, which I don't want to go down that rabbit's hole. Okay. But um, <laughs> in order to keep the experience free of digital distraction, referring to cell phone usage and video recording. Oh my gosh, yes. Uh, they're trying something a little bit different. Uh, they're going to seal, as you enter the theater space, they're going to be requiring that you seal your cell phone in this new thing called a yonder pouch. And what it basically is this little tiny like uh, canvas pouch that you put your cell phone in and it closes. And it, I don't know if it's a magnetic seal, you are unable to open it while you are in the theater house. And you can only open it as you exit the theater house and kind of press it against this little machine that allows you to open it. And I think this is interesting. I, th- I feel like Lin-Manuel Miranda is try- test driving a new experience to maybe to uh, get us free from digital distraction during musicals and during plays. So I'm curious to see if there's any outlash or any what people's experience What the are. response is. Right. Yeah, this is such... I know we talk about this all the time when we go see musicals or when we're in a musical or directing a musical. The amount of people that open up their cell oh. phone. And I and I I hate to call, you know, I hate to say, <laughs> no, oh, they just don't. please call them out. Please call them out, trust me. <laughs> Patty Lapone them, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I it's really irritating because, you know, you can't record in a Broadway theater. It is illegal and and that's because of that's how we make our money to pay the artist on stage and off stage and the people that wrote it and created it and worked on it and designed it and put every jewel and every costume. And I think the idea that people feel like we're in their living room mm-hmm. and they can open their phone is so frustrating, though I'm sure anybody listening to this podcast is sitting in there wherever they are right now going, yes, yes, because everyone probably listening to this is somewhat of an artist or a lover of musical theater. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is fascinating. I, If anybody out there has seen an interview or listened to an interview or read an article about why they're doing this, please like send us a message on Instagram yes. or email us or contact us because we would love to know. I, I'm digging. I can't find anything yet. I know this musical only runs for a month. Right. It's like less than a month. It's very short. And so maybe it's an experimentation on the idea of put your phone away. away. (laughs) 
The last thing I want to talk about, I was really excited when I saw this and reading about it and watching the video. There is a production happening in the Philippines mm-hmm. of Sweeney Todd the Musical starring none other as Mrs. Lovett. Uh, Lea Salanga. Yes. And she is um, starring this production. But what I thought was so fascinating is that this production is almost entirely, if not entirely, from what I could tell from the video clips and the um, cast list, all... Filipino. Yes, right? yeah. absolutely. And the entire design team is mostly Filipino. Mm-hmm. The director, I believe, is Latinx. Latinx, Latinx think, yeah. yes. Um, but what I thought was fascinating is as I'm watching the video clips and there is a even a sound clip of them singing... What is brilliant is that the story is coming alive in a way that has nothing to do with culture or race. Mm-hmm. It is just bringing the story to life through a different lens. That's all. They're simply presenting the show through a unique lens. Yes. They're singing it in English. They're presenting it in the traditional way that uh, Sweeney Todd has always been done. But with a different take. New concept, different take, of course. Which I absolutely was fascinated by because they're doing a totally... They show these pic- these pictures and video of them of presenting the research and the design team presenting Mm -hmm. a new vision. And that's what we talk about and taking a musical and doing it through a different lens. And they're really creating that and offering that to their audience. It's fascinating because Leia even discusses in the interview clips that I watched how this production, this particular version is very different, very um, unique because they're doing a whole conceptual through a different lens idea and that she even says i'm looking forward to seeing the audience scared out of their pants (laughs) (laughs) which is so cute coming from her Uh um and i i think this idea of presenting a musical where we're not discussing it's not about doing it in the in a different language it's about presenting the musical through a different lens Mm -hmm. and i was starting to think about other companies that are supporting this idea that there are, I mean, we have a, a, a bit of a, a problem, I think, with the Asian Pacific Islander community. Absolutely, a, yes. I shouldn't say a problem, a very challenge, because oftentimes we talk about black actors, we talk about people of color, we talk about um, female, but I think this is one group that is often left out. And I think this podcast really, we've, in our in our casual discussions, outside of just these conversations we're having on a microphone, we're telling ourselves and challenging ourselves to, we, we, we're not just referencing women and uh, very specific people of color, we're trying to address the entire systemic problem or challenge that is faced with all people of color, and that includes the Asian Pacific Islander community. Yes. I want to cite a really interesting article that came out by NBC news in 2018 and it cited that asian americans were the only minority group and this was in the 2015 2016 season that asian americans slash pacific islanders were the only minority group to see a drop in representation on new york city stages during that season even as nearly two in five roles a record high from the last 10 seasons Mm -hmm. went to minority actors and i think that's that's that that addresses a problem yes because we don't think about it until you actually tell yourself to sit back and think about it and why do you think that is happening why do you think we we often don't see as many asian pacific islanders or asian americans on stage 
I just I think that there has been a stigma that has been labeled with the Asian Pacific Islander community, and I think that we're while we're starting to see change, it's, I think it's there's very slow. I think the Asian Pacific Islander community has been kind of left marginalized a little bit on the sidelines. And, Absolutely. Uh, I know I have students that come from both backgrounds, both who are mm-hmm. uh, Korean American, that are Japanese American, that are Chinese American, that are uh, Filipino, and I know often that question comes up, you know do I fit in the person of color conversation? And sometimes they feel like they don't. Because oftentimes my students in particular feel like, you know, when we refer to person of color, referring to the black community, referring to Latinx community, but we're not necessarily referencing the Asian Pacific Islander community. And how do we... One, this actually came up in one one of my classes at UCI, the topic of discussion that when is it on Broadway... Mm-hmm. that we see a a surge in Asian, Pacific Islander, Asian Americans on stage. When does that happen? And that only happens when a musical like The King and I is revived on the Broadway. Revival, right. And, and I think that same article that I referenced earlier referenced the fact that that year when the revival of uh, The King and I with Kelly O'Hara came out at Lincoln Center, there was like an 11% increase right. in, in uh, Asian American Pacific Islander representation. I think that's very telling because what are we saying? We're saying that the only opportunity that Asian Americans have is when it's an, an Asian-specific Asian role right. or a musical, yes. And I think this was, was a topic that came up, and actually my TA, who was from that community, was saying, she she stepped in, and I was like, please, please speak, you know, speak your thoughts and your feelings from this personally. And she said, why do I have to be looked at as somebody that is, oh, you are that role because of how you look. You are going to play those Asian-specific roles, And I think that is so detrimental because, again, I know we've talked about this before, so I don't Mm -hmm. want to get too far off on it, but why can't we say, I want to not only represent you as your culture Mm -hmm. and where you come from in your stories, but also why can't you just be seen as other roles? So why can't we see more diversity, more representation? I really like that word, representation Mm -hmm. of all different kinds of people from people from all shapes, all sizes. Why, again, does it have to be... And here's yeah. my here's my weekly gauntlet for any <laughs> directors, choreographers, musical directors, artistic directors, collegiate heads of collegiate programs. Remind yourself that the conversation that includes people of color includes not only uh, the African American community, not only the Latinx community. We need to make sure that we are also representing and inc- being more inclusive of the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. Yes. And I think oftentimes they've been sidelined so much so that actual theater companies have been created to address the systemic problem Absolutely. of representation within the Asian American Pacific Islander community. We see. Here in Southern California, one of the most famous ones that were created in the 60s as part of the Asian American civil rights movement, uh, East West Players. Yes. That that will take predominantly uh, white shows or shows that have been cast with very specific lens mm-hmm. and with the intent of casting them specifically uh, to represent Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really powerful thing. We also see Mayi Theater Company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, the- and we talked about them last week a bit. Mm-hmm. They are the the company that produced that off-Broadway production of Felix... Um, yeah, the one that uh, was an all-Filipino cast, correct? 
Yes, and it was small. It's not running very. Felix Starro, mm-hmm. the musical about the Filipino faith healer. They're the one that is responsible for that production. Again, first time a production is going off Broadway that is um, uh, based on a Filipino American uh, story and writer and and is representing that community. But these theater companies have popped up because they're t- creating a voice for those that have been marginalized, and yes. I think that's really important. But my my gauntlet is that we need to see them reincorporated and incorporated into the larger conversation about casting more diverse people in all walks of life. Yes, not only their stories particular, but in all stories, because we want to see more diversity, of course, on stage. Which takes us back to our puzzler, because I know mm-hmm. we're going to riff off this just a bit. Yeah. What's the answer to our puzzler, Tim? Okay, let's go back to the question. Okay. So the question was, name five musicals that deal with the Asian experience. Okay, of course, we have to go back to Flower Drum Song, Mm -hmm. Um, The King and I, Mm -hmm. by the way, all written by Rodgers and Hammerstein, Mm -hmm. two white men. Yes, Mm -hmm. and and it is important to note, while they are two white men, I think uh, when we talk about them historically and their stance on racism was very prominent in the kind of works they wrote. You look at everything from Flower Drum Song, The King and I, South Pacific, and you look at even The Sound of Music, race is very much a part of the conversation in many of their shows. So in a way, they are kind of like trendsetters. They are. And that's what I love, that it was was two white men in the 40s that were pushing that boundary Mm -hmm. because they, they were able to do it from their platform. So good. And then we also have Pacific Overtures. Stephen Sondheim's Pacific. Overtures. Yes, who was a um, student of um, Oscar Hammerstein. Yeah. And then we also have Miss Saigon, of course, right? Yes. Um, written by um, uh, Schoenberg and Bublil. Bublil. And then Allegiance, right? That, that's correct. And I think the importance of this, that's all I could think of. Was there any others that I missed that you can even think of? Off the top of my head? No. No, but if There's anybody nothing. out there has some more... <laughs> Send us a message. Let us know because we want to make sure we are representing all musicals that have to do with the Asian experience. So let us know. That's all I can really think of where it's predominantly focused on that that side of our human story. But what is quite interesting about Allegiance, if you want to share. Well, yeah, it's it's the first Broadway musical created by Asian Americans, directed by an Asian American and predominantly Asian cast. And an Asian-American viewpoint informing the work. Yes, because this was started really, this is um, George Takei's story about his... His experience um, growing up in an internment camp, a Japanese internment camp mm-hmm. during World War II. And one of I think it's one of the, hands down, one of the darkest chapters mm-hmm. of American history is the internment of proud Asian-Americans in these encampments uh, during World War II for fear of what happened, you know, the fear that spread after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Yes. And it originally went up the old globe that we saw. Mm-hmm. And we actually... We actually stayed in the same apartment complex as George Takei and his husband, Brad, while they were yeah. working on the show in San Diego. We were... I was in graduate school at SDSU for my MFA musical theater. And we all of a sudden got in the elevator and we were like... There's George and Brad. There's George and Brad. And they <laughs> loved our little dog. And <laughs> we had a conversation mm-hmm. in, in the elevator every time we saw them. And they must have been the floor below us because we always ran to them in the elevator. And um, I think it's just such a, a contribution that he has made. It only ran a short time on Broadway. Mm-hmm. But I, I think you have a great uh, outro for us today. Yes. Yes. Uh, and this transitions us into a little soundbite that I want to leave you all, that we want to leave you all with. Um, it's George Takei as he discusses Allegiance, the musical, and its impact on audiences. 
Uh, and so take a listen and maybe it shed some new light on your thoughts, uh, personal thoughts about um, the Asian and Pacific Islander experience in the musical. All right. Have a wonderful week, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye. The musical Allegiance, which uh, is about the uh, uh, internment of Japanese Americans. And uh, we opened first in uh, San Diego at the Old Globe Theater. And I, I was surprised by so many younger Japanese Americans who came uh, and to talk to me after the performance and said to me, I knew my parents or my grandparents were in camp, but that's all I knew. I didn't know anything about what happened in the camp. They didn't know about the loyalty questionnaire. They were deeply moved and they were shocked by what their parents or grandparents went through. So it's an important story that our own people, the younger generation, don't truly understand. And it's an important story that other Americans throughout the country have never heard about. They're shocked when I tell them I grew up in two barbed wire U.S. prison camps. Thank you.